The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. When I heard there was a potential that Daddy could be preaching tonight, I could sense a handoff coming. And so I took the handoff, and then on Wednesday night, when I saw Ronnie was here, and he mentioned he may be here again today, I could feel myself passing the ball. And Ronnie said that uh, he was going to be possibly traveling this evening and may not be back this evening, but he's here. But I'm not that good at the long ball, so he sat close to the back. He missed out. So we'll go with what we have. Go ahead and take your Bibles, open them if you would, to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be examining a very familiar text, at least to most of us. It is commonly known among us, at least, as the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils, depending on which side of that coin you like to look at. I like to go back and, to, at least for my personal studies, to go back and re-examine some of these texts that we see as maybe being a little bit more familiar. I've learned over time, and I continue to learn every day, that as we go back and examine what we call familiar text, that we oftentimes can find unfamiliar truths in there. And I don't, I don't claim that our discussion this evening or our lesson is going to bring out anything you've never seen. As a matter of fact, I would suppose most of what we talk about this evening you have probably seen within this parable, if you've been a student of the Bible very long. However, I do believe, in the beginning at least, that we're going to be taking this parable, and as I like to describe it, taking that coin and turning it over to the other side. You know, oftentimes people refer to a coin, and the first thing they'll say is, do you want heads or tails? I don't know if I've ever heard anyone say it the other way around. And we oftentimes recognize the head of the coin as being the main point of it, the most identifiable parts of it, the, the thing that really helps us to understand what denomination of coinage or billage or whatever that is. But you turn it to its tail, the other side, it's a little bit less identifiable, but there's still a lot of truth found on it. So we're going to take this coin and turn it over on the back side tonight. And if you want to put a, a title with what we're talking about, this may seem strange to you in light of the parable that you know we're about to see. But I want to ask the question, what in the world is wrong with the gospel? What in the world is wrong with the gospel? Because we're taking the word of God, which we're going to find out right here is the seed in the parable. And we're taking this word of God and we're casting that seed out here and there as the sowers. And as we do that, oftentimes, more times than not, as a matter of fact, that seed, the gospel, the word of God, seemingly comes up void. It seemingly comes up short. And because we cast it into some, some soils and some hearts and they're not receptive of it for whatever reason of, and, or maybe they are receptive of it, but they let go of it very soon. You know, all the descriptions that are found herein. But it begs the question that some might ask is, what in the world is wrong with the gospel? What has happened to the word of God? Many of you who are a little bit older supposedly in your minds, and I'm not disagreeing with you, I'm saying supposedly because oftentimes it's the good old days and we don't really see them for what they may have been completely. But many of you can vividly remember a time when the church of Christ was growing, when it was exploding in number, by the way. You can remember a time when it seemed as if any time a man got up to preach, whether it be on a regular Sunday morning or a Sunday evening like this, or maybe it be during a gospel meeting, especially a revival, you saw countless numbers obeying that gospel, coming to that gospel, flocking to it, and, and the pews were filling up, and the buildings were having to grow, and, and all these things were happening. And I, and I realized that has happened in the past. 
One of the things we need to keep in mind is that nothing in the world has changed about this word. In essence, and for the most part, and I'll clarify this in a bit, nothing has changed about the way this word is being delivered, being spoken, and to an extent, nothing, absolutely nothing has changed about the hearts who are receiving it. We may very well just be seeing the other side of that coin. And this is the type of coin that sometimes stands on the edge and spins around and it may fall one direction on one day. It may fall another direction on another. It's the ebb and flow of the church. It's the ebb and the flow of time. And it continues to clarify and verify to me that the Word of God is true. So with all that said, let's look into this parable. But I want to take you, before we get into the meat of it, the actual normal parts of it that we might recognize, which basically bears itself out in verses 1 through 10, I want you to notice with me, uh, first of all, about the messenger who's bringing it. Now remember, Jesus is speaking these words uh, oftentimes we like to talk from or speak from, what you might call his Sermon on the Mount, and this is not a part of that. This is his Sermon by the Seaside. Verses 1 to 3 will reveal that. I want to notice a few things about Jesus and about what he did before we get into this, because I think it'll be very vital as to understanding what's found once we get to the parable Part of this itself. And so beginning in verse 1, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 1, the scripture reads as this, And the same day when Jesus was out of the house, he sat down by the seaside, and great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that they went into a ship, and so that he, or Jesus, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow the seed. So the first thing I want you to notice with me is what I'm going to entitle or describe to you as the method. That is the method of the teaching that Jesus did. And it tells us right here that Jesus came to them and he spoke to them in parables. Now, what in the world is a parable? Well, most of us could define that again if we've been students of the Bible at any time or maybe especially if we were students in the younger grades, the little ages, we were oftentimes told that a parable was simple, simple thinking about this and that is it is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That's been the biblical, uh, supposed, easy-to-understand version of the word parable that I've heard all of my life. Well, I don't deny that. But I do think in the context of the way we understand some of those terms, we have to clarify just a bit, and that is the parable is much more than an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. The reason I emphasize that, and I hope I emphasize the word properly there, the word story, is what we're reading here on these pages, none of it, not one drop of it, is meant to be just a story. If Jesus spoke words, even if He spoke them in parable-type form, He's not just telling a mere story that people could be entertained by. He's not telling a story that people could remember and retell. He's not telling a story just for the purpose of trying to entertain or to, to tickle the ears of the hearers. As a matter of fact, when you examine this method that he used, that of parable which we're about to move into a context that shows us that, you'll understand this is much more than just a story. I think a better way of defining this may be actually to use the word itself and its original word, which... Uh, understand I don't speak Greek, I speak fake Greek that's adapted to a Mumford accent, but it comes from a word parabole, or at least the form of it, which sounds a lot like the word we have parable, and all that is is a transliterated usage of it. 
But it also sounds like another term that we use in more common usage English, and that is the word parallel. So what Jesus is actually doing, and I want you to just put this definition down just for tonight. If you want to take it with you farther, that's fine. But put this down. What Jesus is actually doing is stating a fact of absolute truth and putting beside another fact of absolute truth. What Jesus teaches these people is not going to be under them a head-scratcher. They always say what they say to themselves. Well, you know what? He said something about wayside soil. We don't know what that is. He said something about uh, stony soil. We're not sure about that. He said something about thorny soil. We don't even know what a thorn is. Or he said something about good soil, and we're not familiar with such. The people in Jesus' day were always familiar, most familiar, with the things that he spoke. And so what he spoke to them was a truth, it was a fact. And all he did was take that physical, literal truth, that literal fact, and place it behind what he saw as a parallel to it, and that was a literal and spiritual truth, in fact. So that's the real way of thinking about this. Earthly store with a heavenly meaning? No problem with it. Better understanding truth up against truth. And as I've liked to say many times in my life, truth is truth no matter its source. And when you find the Word of God right here, you have absolute, quantitative, summative, perfect truth. So what Jesus said here is not necessarily a story. Now that's the method of this preacher. But I want you to drop down with me just a little bit. That's in chapter 13, verses 1 through about 3a. Drop down with me to verse 10. Not only do I want you to know it's the method of this teacher right here, I want you to know that to an extent there is a mystery to his teaching. When Jesus delivered these parables, his disciples basically came to him, verse 10 to begin with, and the disciples came and said to him, Why speakest thou to them in parables? Now they knew what a parable was. They used the word. They didn't have to say, What is a parable? They just said, Why are you doing that? And if you'll do your research, and this is a side note, Jesus had never before used parables to people. He hadn't done it. Matter of fact, you read the preceding chapter, what you find out is when he was teaching without parable, without parallel, just drawing straight truths out to them, doing absolutely nothing to harm them. And matter of fact, already beginning to heal many of them. Verse 26 of chapter, chapter 12 says, and if, hold on, I'm sorry, that's the wrong, that's Jesus' reply to such. Verse um, 24 says, and the Pharisees heard it, and they said, this fellow, pointing at Jesus, doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. In essence, you read the context, they said Jesus was a devil. Jesus replied to them by saying, a devil wouldn't cast out a devil, therefore I'm not a devil. So he switches gears to the mysterious point of the parable. Now that was in verse 10 of chapter 13, read on. He answered, Jesus talking back to his disciples. And he answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Verse 12. For whosoever hath to him it shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not from him it shall be taken away, even he that hath. Therefore I speak to them in parables. Why, Jesus? Because they see See not, and hearing, hear not, 
Neither do they understand. Verse 14, And in them is it fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing they shall hear and not understand, and by seeing they shall see and not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, verse 15, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have been closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand. Yet, hold on this, with their heart and yet should be converted that I should heal them. So what are you saying, Jesus? In in a nutshell, Jesus says, I'm using parables in a sense to be a mystery to them, both to do two things. Keep this on your minds. To either reveal or to conceal. Okay? Either to reveal or to conceal. Now, what is Jesus saying? Jesus said there's a group of people already in existence that when they hear my words, when they see my wonders, they do my will. They obey me. They take it. They pile upon riches upon riches. They grow. They build. They expand. Yet there is another type of individual that is available here in this audience that when they hear these words, they close their ears. When they see these miracles, they cover their eyes. They do not understand the will and word of God because they don't want to. And Jesus said to those who don't want to see they will not see. To those who do not want to hear, they will not hear. But to those who had the opposite effect upon them, everything is revealed. Both reveal and conceal. Now the thing that comes into effect that I really have to focus on, this is focusing on for me, you can do it to yourself, you can, you can test yourself by this or whatever, is I have to consider that Jesus is saying that He's either going to give me more abundance of His Word and His wisdom or He's going to take away what I have. He's either going to continue to give and continue to allow me to grow and build or He's going to take away that which I have. You say, now wait a minute, that's not fair, that's not right, that's, that's not even, even the way that I would have done it. doesn't matter. Jesus said, I'm drawing these truths out. Truth against truth. I'm using this parable to make sure that those who want to hear it will and those who do not want to hear will not. Now let's illustrate that just for a moment so we can understand the logic of Jesus. I don't know that we can understand the mind of God, but we can understand sometimes the logic of Jesus. Suppose for a moment you had two businesses, or at least you want to create two businesses, and you had a sum total, a tumble, tum, sum total sum, th- sum, how would I just say? A sum total, we'll stop there, of $100,000. few of us had that on the side, but you suppose you did. So you take $50,000 and you place it in business A, You take $50,000, you place it in business B, and you step back and allow those business as they've been now created and given the means to start, and you allow them to begin. Come back after a year. If business A is making twice the sum you originally put in it, while business B is losing ground, which one will you continue to fund? A. Right there, A. Where might you find the funds to continue to fund this business? You just might close business B and put it where the good stuff is. God has given truths unto every man, available truths. 
for those men, hopefully like all of us, who gather those truths to ourselves, who use those truths in our hearts, God continues to abundantly place truths upon us. For those who are in the other side of that, that phrase, where they are taking the truth and the truth is rolling off their backs, going out of their minds, being ignored by their hearts, God gets to a point where He says, I'm no longer going to waste truths here. I can take it there. That's a pearl before swine type of scenario. That's the mystery right here. Now here's something we have to know about that. We had not got to the parable, I get it. But here's something we have to know. If I'm going to get truth from God and continue to get it, I'm going to have to first use the truth I have. Someone says, well, I wish I knew all that brother so-and-so knows and all that sister so-and-so knows. What have I done with what I know? How am I living with what I have available and what I have already accepted? That's the mystery of his teaching. Last point right here, and we'll jump into the parable itself. Not just within this, the method of his teaching, the mystery of his teaching. Look at the motive of his teaching. Drop down to verse 12. Same context, chapter 13, verse 12. For whosoever, read across this, for whosoever hath, to him it shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. I already made reference to that. But whosoever hath not from him, it shall be taken away that which he hath. You remember yet another time when Jesus spoke in a parable type of sense where he started handing out, at least in the scenario, at least, the account. God was handing out talents. He used the king to represent that. One man gets five talents. One man gets uh, two talents. One man gets one talent. Each of them are given opportunity to invest and do with what they should. At the end, what was the condemnation of each of these men or any of these men? based upon how they used the talents. If I want to gain abundance from God in knowledge, in wisdom, in whatever light that I needed or would gather from it, I've got to use what I have. Now, with that being said, let's read this parable together. Starting in verse 3. He spake many things of them in parables, saying, first statement, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. Verse 4, and he sowed some seeds, fell, among the, fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. And some seeds fell upon stony places, where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up, because they had no deepness in the earth. And when the sun was up, verse 6, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among, verse 7, thorns. And the thorns sprang up and choked them. And others fell on good ground and brought forth fruit, some hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirty. He who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now there are basically three things, and I said we'd be turning this coin over and answering some of the questions, what in the world is wrong with the gospel? You already understand there's nothing wrong with it, but we're going to suppose if there's someone we're questioning that. Number one, when it comes to sharing the gospel or teaching the gospel or doing uh, whatever you want to consider that, taking the gospel to the world, number one, there is no problem with the seed. There is no problem with the seed. The latter part there, verse 3, Jesus said very plainly, a sower went forth to sow. 
Each of the times he chose to sow them, whether it was among that wayside, whether it was among that stony, whether it was among that root field or, if you will, vine field area, or whether it was among that good soil, he continued to sow the same exact seed. Now, we live in a time where, sadly, even among sometimes churches of Christ, and I have to use that loosely to involve some of those folks, but even among churches of Christ where we've got people, particularly I blame preachers for this. You could blame any of the members if they're of the same mindset. But we've got preachers who decided that simply just sowing this seed right here, that's not good enough. Just, just taking the Bible, letting it fall, and I'm not saying it's anything miraculous, but letting it fall to a page, putting their finger down and saying, okay, this is the truth of God. This is the truth of God that deserves to be taught. This is the truth of God that deserves to be lived. And preaching straight out of the Word of God, that has become a, a rarity. The seed right here being defined, and you can look to Luke's account of this. Luke 8 and verse 11. Luke has a parallel to this same account of the sower and the seeds and such as that. And Luke plainly says the seed is the Word of God. That's how, as a matter of fact, according to Luke's account, I assume Jesus preached this sermon more than once. If not, Luke saw it on the same day and heard what he heard. But assuming he preached it more than once, the way he opened, Jesus opened the parable to those folks in Luke's account was by saying, before we even get confused here, the seed is the Word of God. And there's no problem with the Word. Now, I don't usually flip or flop, but I want to flip or flop to three more parallel passages, text that continue to prove that to us so I can be reassured of that, so I can often be reminded of that because it's easy, even as a preacher, to get, in, get into a place, get in front of a, a group of people and begin to feel like, you know what, I really need to interject a little bit more here. I really need to add a little bit more here because, you know, the Word may not touch them. It will. The Word may not affect them. It should. So look at the power that it has. Go with me for just a moment. Leave your, leave your marker here in Matthew chapter 13. But go over first of all to 1 Peter. These all be familiar texts. I chose them because they were. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. Just hear what's said right here. 1 Peter 1 and verse 22. Seeing, and you'll get there before we get to the main part anyway. Seeing ye have been purified your souls in obeying the truth. Through the Spirit and the unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Watch this now, verse 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Now look on to verse 24. For the flesh is of grass, and all the glory of the man is a flower of the grass, and the grass withereth. And the flower there falleth there away. Verse 25, but the word of the Lord, same idea, endureth, and the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. So what are you telling us, Peter? Peter in his inspired writings right here tells us point blank, without a doubt, that if we're born again, that is born of God, we're born only by, by the only means of, the word of God. And that word of God liveth one way and abideth, continues to stay that way, forever and endureth as it is preached. 
So I've heard a number of people, I get it, I understand it, I, I don't discredit this at all, but I've heard a number of people, and, and I'm afraid they're right on one stand, who say, well, I can remember back when I was a little kid or when I was younger or back in the old days, the 50s, 60s or such, and I tell you what, preachers don't preach like they used to. In some cases, maybe. In most cases, it could be that people don't hear like they used to. We're so distracted. We're so pulled away. We fall into the category of some of these soils. And, and we're so affected by everything around us that the Word of God isn't taking precedence in our lives. Secondary passage. Hebrews. Go back to the book of Hebrews now. You're in 1 Peter. So turn back just a little bit to your left. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. Again, you'll look at this. Say, oh, I've read this before. That's good. That's good. Hebrews chapter 4. Notice what is discovered there in verse 12. For the word of God, same idea. Remember, the seed is the word, according to what Peter just told us. Luke 8, 11, the seed is the word. For the word of God is quick, that is alive, powerful, yes, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing asunder even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So we have here the Word of God is alive and the Word of God is filled with power. Zoe energos. You say, what does that mean? Completely, fully, expandably alive and filled with the power and the energy that God contains. Every ounce. And so to read the Word of God and not to be excited by it, not to be uh, overwhelmed by it, not to be taken back by it, is to understand in our minds that God is not a part of it, but He is. He's there. Last passage, and I promise we'll move on. Go with me to the book of John. So keep going back to the left, go to the Gospel of John. Look with me in chapter 6. Now Jesus had, had times, many times as a matter of fact, where multitudes or throngs of people had come unto Him, where they were, you know, being pleasured or pleased by what He had. John chapter 6 is one of those. He had just fed 5,000 men alone, not including women and children. In verse uh, 26, he, he says, you know, to the people, you know, you saw the miracles that were done. Uh, you came to eat the loaves, but where are you ending up going? Verse 63, John 6 and verse 63. It is the Spirit. And he's talking about what He has described to them, what He's just taught. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh that profiteth nothing, the words that I speak unto you. They are spirit and they are life. So put this all together. Peter says the word of God, the seed, the uncorruptible seed is the word of God. He says that word of God liveth and abideth forever and fadeth not away. The Hebrew writer tells us in turn that that same word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And Jesus said of his own mouth, in the word is spirit and life. So there is no problem, no issue at all whatsoever with a seed. Now, I will take a shot. There is a problem. To take the statement I just used by example, there is a problem at times that some preachers, many preachers, love to plow the ground, you know, dig things up, stir things up, step on the toes, punch at the heart, whatever. They love to pour the water on the crops. They love to spill the water in the oozing love and compassion and grace of God upon folks. But sometimes they fail to begin with to sow the seed. 
Just try it. Just try it. Go home. Dig a place up in your yard. Plow up the ground. Get it all ready. Go out there every single day. Put your watering hose over if it's not raining. Water it and water it and water it and wait. And if there's no seed in that ground, there's not one thing coming up. It's not at all. And it's always impressed me. And I know there are many types of seed, but we live in Alabama. We live in Munford. Nothing impresses me more than something as small as my little baby fingernail like a watermelon seed. You let it get in the ground and it puts down roots and it spreads out vines and it brings out watermelons that big around and it's got all the water in it you could hope for, the flavor in it you could dream of. The Word of God has power greater than that. No problem with the seed. Second, there's no problem in the parable, at least with the sower. The sower, he says, point blank, I'm going back to our text now, Matthew chapter 13. And the sower went forth, verse 3, the latter. Behold, he went forth, the sower went forth to sow. And when he had sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside again. Some seeds fell, verse 5, on stony places again. And some seeds fell upon the thorns. But some seeds fell upon good ground. Now, what's the main point we always hear from this? It's the main point I'm going to make as well. This sower just sowed seed. When I spend or you spend or any of us spend, we spend too much time going around taking soil samples and testing out soils and trying to determine if this fellow over here, this lady back there, that guy over yonder, if 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 I think that they'll receive the Word of God or I try to guess what type of soil they are. I've spent all day guessing and all day testing and all day investigating and no day bringing a soul to Jesus. Not one. And it's so easy to look around us and look into the faces of people and try to look through their eyes and to try to look into their heart, which we all know we cannot see, and make a determination as to whether or not the seed ought to be sown. Jesus never gave that liberty. Jesus never mentions in this parable. You know, you think about this sower. If he's exactly what it is, this is a heavenly truth with heavenly meaning. Earthly truth with a heavenly meaning. Jesus understands that these people here were familiar with the sowing of seed. These people were familiar with gathering in crops as a result of their labors. And the people here were familiar with that, knew that any good farmer had enough sense if he chose to determine where and how a seed would be planted. I'm amazed. I go past fields around here in Munford. There'll be tractors so high, couldn't touch the top of the tires, big, uh, you know, air-conditioned calves, these big whatever they are, cultivators, cedars, whatever, spread out the back. They'll be 15, 20 foot wide. But it's interesting to me, those men can drive those tractors and they can put that seed near about exactly where they want it to go. These men could do that then. They could have easily said, no, that's wayside. No, this over here, that's stony. Don't put any there. That's us because it's going to be among the thorns. They could have done so. They could have been predetermined. They could have been judgmental. But Jesus used an example of a sower who went out. It's not that he didn't care. It's the fact that he did care. And he cared about his family. And he cared about himself. And he said, I'm going to sow all the seed that I've been supplied with. 
And I'm going to spread it and spread it as far and wide as I can and wherever it takes up, it takes up. He wasn't worried about the harvest of the next year. He was worried about the harvest of today. There's a lesson in that. For me to stand back and say, you know what, if I can ever get that good Bible study, I'll have it. If I can ever find that person who, you know, they just walk up to me and say, I need to know everything there is to know about the Bible right now, will you please tell me? I'll jump on that. But making predeterminations as to what type of soil they are causes us to never even bring the seed out of our pockets. To never cast it toward them. The man in the parable, this sower did not do that. You know, I've been in situations, and I won't go into so much detail, but I've been in situations. I was in a situation, ooh, this has been eight, ten years ago. Blew my mind. I went to a house with a, with a preacher from our community. I won't call him by name, but went to a house with a preacher from the community. All I did with that day was call him up and say, hey, can I tag along? He was going out to have some Bible studies. Wanted to go, wanted to watch what was happening. We went up to a house, and I'll never forget the front of the house, and never forget the way it was. The thing that stood out the most was that the porch was about that high, and the only way to get on it was for us to just grab hold and just shimmy up. Wasn't no steps. Once you got up there, you walked on the joist because the floorboards that were on the porch were, for the most part, rotted. So you you took your steps very gingerly. We went inside of a house, and this preacher went in to study with this older lady. You could tell she was in poor health, you know, the way she was. I think she had oxygen around her and such. She was sitting there in that chair. But what caught my attention wasn't her first. It was a fellow that was just inside the door. We stepped in the door. The fellow right here inside the door. Didn't, didn't even notice him when I stepped in, but it kind of startled me when I did. I saw boxers, belly, and Budweiser. That's the truth. Boxers, a belly, and Budweiser. He was sitting there in his boxer shorts, belly hung out, sipping on a Budweiser. And I thought to myself, oh, my lands, this ain't going to be good. There ended up being six people in that room that day before it was over. Six people, including him, including the elderly lady. Bible study went forward. Phone rang in the middle of it. fellow with a Budweiser got up and went and got the phone. Thought nothing of it. I've gotten used to him being there. He brings the phone back in, I guess hung up, laid it there on the, on the, ta- on the little table next to him. We proceeded on. Bible study ended. At the end of the Bible study, the man with the Budweiser, who had done set the drink, I guess finished it, reached and picked up the phone and said, Did you hear that? Caught me off guard. Did you hear that? I couldn't hear the guy on the other end. He said, That was Bible, wasn't it? He'll be back next week. I'm going to call you again. And he laid the phone down. Why do I say that? I wouldn't pick that kind of soul. I wouldn't pick the soul of that, that man on the other end. I don't know who was. I wouldn't pick the soul of anybody in the room. I said there were six. There were eventually six baptisms that came out of that room, including Budweiser man. Folks, that blew my mind. How? Why? When? The Word of God. Send it out. Sowed out among the hearts of men.
That's the sower. Last part here you recognize the most. Not only the seed, there's no problem with the seed. In the parable, there's no problem with the sower. He's throwing seed, he's throwing seed every which way. There is no problem with the soil. You say, wait a minute, there's a problem with the soil. There's three of these soils ain't worth a ain't worth a tooth. They ain't worth, I mean, they don't even work. Only one of them's good. There's no problem with the soils. The reason I say that is because it's, it's laying here upon these black and white pages. Mine are a little yellowed, but these black and white pages is laying upon here the very Word of God. And if the Word of God stated there were four types of soil, one of them seemingly to us only being good, measured out as we may, three of them seemingly to us being not so good or even bad, that does nothing for me but confirm the Word of God comforts me to know that I may, I may encounter, you may encounter, we all may encounter. Jesus encountered. He encountered soils that were not receptive, soils that were not open, soils that were not ready. And He proclaimed the Word to them anyway. He continued to preach them nonetheless. And to find someone who comes up and seems as if by the end of that discussion or whatever, the study, and it won't necessarily just be one, but someone who comes up and seems to be wayside or seems to be stony or seems to be taken by the thorns only confirms Jesus knew what He was talking about. He knew exactly what He was speaking of. So there's no problem with the soils. Now, the problem is with the hearts of the men who could be described by such soils. That's the problem. That's exactly the problem. As a matter of fact, let's read the types again. And, and thankfully, this is the parable through which Jesus turns later on in the same context and explains everything out. So we have the revelation of it. We have the explanation of it. But that first type of soil, some verse 4, and when he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. You put to that his explanation which comes a little bit farther down in this. Look in verse 37. I about overlooked this anyway. Verse 37, He answered, said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is, is the Son of Man. So Jesus originally sows the seed that they would take in. Look at His explanation, though, back up the seed. And He that... Uh, let me find it here. Verse 13-ish. Hold on. There it is right there. Verse 19. And when anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catches to the way that which was sown in his heart, and he that which receives seed by the wayside. That's his explanation. The disciples ask, what does this parable mean? Why do you use this parable? What is it all about? Jesus says, first of all, mark it out the wayside soil is the soil that was sown on that wayside? Yes, but it's a person. And I've never noticed this. That's my only shortfall. He heard the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not. This guy didn't even know what he heard. 
It's no wonder it didn't take root. It's no wonder that Satan was able to come in and gather it up. It's no wonder that it was able to be devoured over here by birds. Because this man didn't know what he heard. He didn't understand it. He didn't take it. He didn't apply it. He could not use it because he didn't know what he had heard. Let me put a word with that for description's sake. In this man's heart, there was no reception. I'm going to use our words for memory. There was no reception in this man's heart. The word was tossed. The word was scattered. The word fell upon his heart. He just didn't receive it. Didn't accept it. Didn't take it. Why? I know in the next part we get to the stony soil. We often think about the stony soil as being the hard ground, the the ground where we might describe it even as having a hardened heart, whatever. I believe right here the wayside is more so than that. The wayside is literally the outskirts, typically described as the outskirts of the field, the place in which all the workers would enter in and then come to where they were working. It was trodden down day after day after day. It would be great soil had it not been trodden underfoot. It would be great soil in that case had it not been compacted and compressed to the point that it was now unbreakable and unbearable. That describes the majority of the world. There's three more to go. But that describes the majority of the world. Their lives have been so trampled on, so compacted and so compressed by this life that they become hard. And so you go to the door and you knock and they have no reason to talk to us. They have no reason to listen. They have no reason to even allow us a moment because their hearts are as hard as steel right now. Now, Several different prophetic type references are made. Jeremiah 4 and verse 3 is one of them. Hosea 10 and verse 12 is another one of them where it talks about breaking up fallow ground. Breaking up hard hearts. So it takes effort. It takes effort by the part of the sower. Effort by the part of the the soil itself. But the principle here is these people have no reception. Second part here, verse 2. Verse, uh, not verse 2, verse um, 5. Some fell among stony places where they had not much earth. and full width they sprang up because they had no deepness of earth. What is this? Well, according to verse 20, across the page, and he that receives seed on stony places is the same that heareth the word of God, just like the guy before, and anon receiveth it with joy. But yet he hath no root in himself, but dureth for a while, and when tribulation... And persecution arises because the word, by and by, he is offended. What is this, Jesus? This man has no root. And we focus on the stoniness of the soul, but the problem here is he has no root. Mumford is a diverse place. I don't know what it's like where you live, but out on McKelgey Road, especially when you go across the creek right there, you can turn and you can go into our yard anywhere you'd like. Take a shovel, take a post hole digger, take whatever you want, and you can dig very, very easily for about four inches. 
And then you hit solid rock. That's Palestine of Jesus' day. There was always a layering of sand, always a layering of dust and dirt, but underneath that was a lot of times, more times than not, nothing but solid rock. And you could sow, and you could plant, and you could water, and it would grow quickly until it got to a point where the roots could no longer delve in, and it would immediately die. As described here in Jesus' description, these are the people who have no root. The others had no reception. They never heard. These people heard it. They had joy. They had pleasure. Uh, You could assume they were the ones turning cartwheels out of the baptistry. But as soon as trouble came, as soon as they got sick, as soon as the loved one died, as soon as someone lost their job, as soon as someone had a relationship go bad, they immediately died out. That's the majority of what makes up the people inside of buildings like this, or at least people who should be in buildings like this, having no root. Next part of this, and I know we have to move quickly. There's also, in some cases, no room. Verse 7, some fell among the thorns, and some sprang up and choked them out. Verse 22, Jesus' explanation, and he received seed among the thorns, See, to hear the word and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. There's no room. This describes to me the life of many also as well, myself included at times. Well, there's just so much in my life. There's no real room for growing with God. There's no real room for growth. There's no real room for producing fruit for bringing fruit. Paul speaks to the Galatians, talks to them about what he refers to or we refer to today as the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23. Those things numbered out there. Those things listed out. The question in my mind is, you know, it doesn't matter what joy, what excitement, what thrill uh, being a Christian has brought me or has bringing me thus far in this time. What if the world gets a hold to me? What if a vine wraps around my neck? What fruit can I bring forth? And then last one here, this is the one, and I'm going to put a negative swing on it because we are. There's not only just no reception, no root, no room. There is no refusal. That's actually positive. I put a no in front of it though. There's no refusal. The good soil is listed here. He says, in some fell, verse 8, unto good ground, brought forth fruit, some 60, uh, some 100, some 60, and some 30. Move across the page, verse 23, his explanation, but he that receiveth seed into good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, and he which beareth fruit and bringeth forth, he restates, some hundredfold, some 60, and some 30. So it's got to be a test. In, in our lives, in my life, there has to be a test to determine if I have been and will be good ground. Again, those fruits of the Spirit are sometimes bearing truths. But then it's not just the fact that I've been able to bear fruit in my life, 
and for my life, how much fruit can I bear outside of my life? That's what the sower noted. He saw good ground. He he recognized and he cast his seed upon these other types. Yes, some who refused, some who, you know, all these things, some who had no root. But he also cast upon those who would not refuse. And those people who took what they had and with every ounce of fruit they grew. And it's, it's, it's a part of being fruit. That the fruit contains its own seed. And the seed grows on itself again and again. And the crops are gathered for longer periods of time. That's the good soul. But what that tells me about my life is I may very well easily not be good soul, but some of yet the other, unless I bear fruit. That's the difference. So is there a problem with a seed? No. Is there a problem with a sower? Absolutely not. Is there a problem with the soils? No. But there is a problem with a heart like mine that could be seen in Jesus by Jesus in judgment as being anything but good. If you're here tonight and you're not a child of God's, the thing about all of these souls, any of them, including the last, is that the time to, to be fallow, to be plowed, to be broken up, to be made good ground is, is now. Because becoming a soul that we had no intention of being may be tomorrow. If you're here tonight and you're not a child of God, God's open invitation stands. It has never changed. It will not change. The Word has never been Uh, made to be anything different, but hearing His Word is important. These men had to hear all of them. Believing on His Word is important. Some of them chose to do just that. Repenting in our sins and and the sins that we have is is commanded upon us to be baptized, immersed, to come in contact with not just the water, but the blood of Jesus is of ultimate, ultimate desire. If you're here tonight and you're not a child of God's and the the question that I would have was, why not tonight? The question for myself is, what can I be tonight? What can I become? How would I be seen? And how could I come to God and change my life even while we stand?